Welcome to Heartland History, a podcast by the Midwestern History Association, a new scholarly association devoted to Midwestern history. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we have a very special guest, Andrew Seal. Andrew is finishing his dissertation at Yale University in American Studies, and his work deals at length with the history of the American Midwest. Andrew is a native of Indiana and is also one of the key leaders of the Emerging Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to join you. Andrew, could you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and how it relates to the American Midwest? Yeah, well, it started out very Midwestern. I, uh, in, in the first um, iteration, it was called Midwestern Accents, um, sort of a, a, a play on, on the way that uh, often the Midwestern accent is considered to be standard, you know, the, the legendary newscaster accent. Um, and so the way that the Midwest uh, both appears and disappears in, in um, American history more broadly, um, I wanted to, to essentially ask you know, what happens when we use the Midwest in this very essentialist way, um, as if it has this very stable core of social values and political postures associated with it that everyone recognizes immediately. Um, you know, last night I was uh, watching... Um, the, the DNC and uh, the, the convention and um, I was watching on PBS and David Brooks was one of the uh, commentators on Barack Obama's speech and he called it very Midwestern uh, and there was explicit Midwestern content in it. Um, you know, uh, President Obama spoke about his grandparents from Kansas, spoke about um, their values, the way that they didn't like show offs. They liked hard work and dedication. Um, and so there was this explicit Midwestern content, but also there's something that happens when David Brooks calls it very Midwestern. And I was interested in basically trying to account for what it is that is happening there. Um, so I, I pursued this project uh, along those lines for a while, and then I kind of ran into two problems that uh, led me in a different direction. Um, and the, the first one was that I didn't really like how autobiographical uh, the dissertation was, was turning out to be. Um, as a good Midwesterner, I felt that was kind of self-indulgent. Um, and uh, so I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable with that. Um, but the other problem is, is that when you write a history of an essentialism, um, everyone just wants you to confirm the idea that they already have of, of what you're writing about. And so I found out that a lot of people didn't really want to hear about the history of the Midwest. They wanted to hear about the history of Gopher Prairie or Lake Wobegon. Um, and when I tried to, you know, uh, talk about something else, they stopped listening. Um, and so that, you know, people's ideas of what the Midwest really is are very sticky. And, uh, you know, this is, this is an issue that many people run into in many different ways. Um, and so it's certainly not unique. Uh, dealing with essentialisms is, a problem that many historians face. Uh, but um, I started thinking about the kinds of issues that I was 
dealing with in, in other ways. And it led me to reconceptualize my project as a history of the idea of the common man, which is also something that people have a sort of immediate emotional or affective response to, you know, the, the common man. I feel like you know what that is. Uh, but I found out that it really actually has a very interesting history that no one has told yet. Um, it has a particular set of, of origins, uh, a particular set of ideas associated with it. And gradually over time, it has become a much more generalized concept used very vaguely by politicians on the campaign stump. Um, but I was interested in telling that that real history. Uh, most people in the history profession associate the term the common man with the age of Andrew Jackson. I found out that that's actually not where it comes from. At that time, if somebody called you a common man, they weren't telling you that you were a, an upstanding citizen. They were telling you that you were kind of uh, white trash. Um, and it was not intended as an honorific or a complimentary uh, comment. Um, and so it only really takes on an honorific sense in the late 19th century. Um, and so I was really fascinated by that. Um, and I think that that has a lot of, of impact on how we think about 19th century history and how we think about uh, the, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era um, at the turn of the century. So uh, I was interested in really digging into what caused the term to change, what caused common to suddenly become a positive term. Um, and so my dissertation has largely been about that, about the way that um, common started to take on this very um, positive meaning of uh, something more like the commonwealth or the common good. Um, and uh, so I, I've been busy investigating that. And a lot of the same figures showed up in, in what I was originally planning to do and now what I'm, I'm doing now. Um, the, the novelist Sinclair Lewis was a big part of, of the original uh, version of, of my dissertation. He remains a big part of, of, uh, of what I'm writing now. What is meant by the term essentialist, and why do so many intellectuals object to the idea of essentializing? Well, I think that the idea of, of essentialism is, you know, basically that it doesn't have a history, that there's always been one way that something has existed, and it doesn't allow for, you know, people's diverse experiences of whatever you're talking about, whether it's race or region or class. Um, and so it's, it's very dangerous to leave essentialisms alone without beginning to, to think about the way that you can include multiple perspectives on that experience. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, essentialism um, has tremendous force, and, and, and perhaps that is why it is uh, so difficult to, um, to write histories about essentialisms. Um, you know, because people respond to it so powerfully uh, and think that they know what it means, uh, that, you know, they, they know what the Midwest is, that, that when um, you say something is very Midwestern, that you sort of communicate an unspoken set of, of, um, of ideas of, of social values or political attitudes um, and also a, a set of, of common experiences, experiences that you hold um, in, in common with the person that you're talking to. Um, and you know, sometimes we see just mere images of the same sorts of things, 
you know, one side looks at something like, uh, well, for instance, um, the word simple or something like that. You know, if you say, well, I'm just a simple kind of guy, you know, you can say that um, as, as a statement of, of your wholesomeness. Um, but somebody else can use simple in an incredibly derogatory way. Um, and that's a word that I often encountered in, in talking about in Midwestern essentialism um, or, you know, plain is another one. And so I think that, you know, those kind of words do so much work in terms of, of our emotions and our experiences, um, but they also don't get a lot of reflection and they don't get a lot of you know, inquiry, I guess, uh, in day to day life. We take them for granted. Um, and that's difficult. That's, that's really difficult to challenge as a historian. Do you see Midwestern essentialism as stronger or weaker than other regional essentialisms or identities? I'm thinking in particular here about the American South, which is seen to have a stronger identity than other regions. I think it's different. I think that it's, it's definitely unique because I think that um, uh, it's less tied to a particular history. Uh, into particular historical events. Um, you know, I think that um, in part because it um, forms as, as an identity uh, relatively late because it forms out of a larger Western identity, uh, which is opposed to um, both the, the South and, and New England uh, and, and, and the middle states of Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, so forth. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it comes only around um, the after the Civil War. You know, the people really start thinking of themselves as, as removed from a larger Western experience. And so I think that it's, it's very difficult uh, in that sense for there to be a real sense of, uh, of the identity being anchored in a particular history. It, it comes at us more as a sort of bundle of emotions and, and attitudes and, and habits and, and um, even, you know, language, a particular way of speaking or a particular way of uh, communicating with, um, with one's friends, a um, particular way of, of living. Um, and those are uh, ways, of, there are ways of talking about other regions that involve those kind of things too. But I think that without that sort of deep historical anchor and a particular event or set of events, you know, without, I mean, there, there is a revolutionary history, obviously, of, of the American Revolution uh, of the Midwest, and, and there's, you know, a, a civil war history as well, but we don't think of them as as part of, of the Midwest in the same way that we do about New England or the South. Um, and so I, I think that without those kind of historical anchors, it's very difficult to have a, a deeply historical conversation with somebody about the Midwest. And I'm sure you know this better than just about anybody. Andrew, who would you say were some of the key thinkers and writers who gave shape to Midwestern identity by the end of the 19th century? Well, I think that, um, I mean, I just uh, I was, was talking about the, the Midwestern history of, of the Civil War. And I think that, you know, the, the cult of Lincoln that develops very quickly and also a cult of, of Grant and of Sherman and, and Sheridan as well of these great Midwestern generals. But I think that they also 
Uh, I mean, in, in in many ways, Lincoln completely transcends the Civil War um, very quickly. Um, he becomes you know, part of a, a pantheon that is not you know, uh, contained within that that experience. Um, and so his his uh, later in the in the century, um, particularly with some of, of the biographies that come out um, by Ida Tarbell or, or John Hay or a number of other. Uh, figures, you know, they focus more on his childhood, things that are, you know, before the Civil War. And um, you look at, at something like uh, Jane Addams and, and her um, memoir of 20 Years at Hull House. She has these beautiful passages about the way that her father and many other people in, in her community of Rockford uh, identified with uh, Lincoln in terms of his background and his um, the values that he grew up espousing um, even before the Civil War. Um, and so the, the Civil War is this crucible of, of Midwestern identity to some extent, but it also has you know, a, a larger uh, impact in, in, in the guise of, of Lincoln or Grant as well. Um, they become legends that uh, I, I think really shape what it means to be Midwestern. In your work on the history of the common man, how does the Midwest figure in your analysis? There does seem to be more respect for the common man and egalitarianism in the Midwest than in the South, for example, where a legacy of aristocracy and class divisions lived on, and of course, racial segregation lived on. Do you think that's true? I do, but it's it's one of those things that is very difficult to provide hard evidence for, um, and you know you you do quickly get into the kinds of problems that Midwestern historians have run into when they make that argument for over a century. You know, uh, Turner, Dr. Jackson Turner, the great historian of the the frontier thesis, um, you know, has been uh, routinely criticized for more than a century now. Um, for the way that he presumes this egalitarianism to have existed on the frontier in, in the Midwest or the old Northwest, as it was called then. Um, you know, but uh, I, I think that it's, it's something that you know, is, is as much an article of faith as it is you know, about you know, any kind of really in-depth social historical analysis. Um, I do see evidence for a much greater degree of deference as a social constituent of, of um, interpersonal relations, um, you know the way that uh, you are expected to talk to your boss um, in uh, Boston, as opposed to Chicago, I think was was different uh, in the late 19th century. Um, and you know there there aren't. Um, an abundance of sources that prove that conclusively. You know, there are no smoking guns that I've found, but I've found enough um, circumstantial evidence, I guess you could say, to really feel confident that that um, that is a part of, of why um, I have found uh, a lot more Midwesterners to embody and, and to express these views that I consider to be uh, the, the definition of, of uh, the common man idea. I'd like to ask you about your recent keynote address to the Midwestern History Association, Andrew. But uh, first, tell us about your roots in the American Midwest. Yeah, well, um, technically speaking, and I, I feel uh, 
bad revealing this now, but uh, I was born in Concord, Massachusetts, um, cradle of liberty and all. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, um, but both he and my mom are uh, uh, Hoosier natives. And so they brought me back when I was 18 months, 20 months old uh, to live in Indiana. Um, we moved back to Indiana and I grew up there. Um, I have you know, no real memories of, of anything before Indiana. Um, and so I grew up there, went to high school there and uh, in, in the city of Richmond, Indiana. Um, which is famous in the Midwest for the large number of RV dealerships and uh, signs on I-70. Um, it's not a particularly dignified identity to have, but um, we had a state basketball champion 20-some years ago. Um, there aren't, there aren't a, a huge number of things that, uh, that we take local pride in, but our local pride is very strong. And I think that there's also a very strong sense of, of state history. Um, when I was in fourth grade, um, that was the, the history for the year. Um, and I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher, uh, Brenda King, who helped us build old dioramas of, of state history and, and really gave us an astoundingly deep uh, knowledge of state history, <laughs> uh, knowledge that I continue to draw on. Um, and uh, you know, she would read us Poems by James Wickham Riley, and we did a, a parade of famous Hoosiers. Um, I actually dressed up as, uh, as Dan Quayle, um, <laughs> and uh, but it was it was a an experience that I, I think is is far too rare. Um, you know, even if there is some coverage of state history, um, you know, it's it's probably not deep enough. And I, I think that that's, that was something that. I'm very glad I, I had, uh, and I hope um, is strengthened. And you know, maybe not fourth grade, uh, maybe a little bit older. Uh, but um, at some point, I think that all children should have state history. You mentioned James Whitcomb Riley. He was a great voice of Indiana and the Midwest for many years, of course. But I'm wondering how conscious people are of Riley. Uh, in this day and age and his regional writings and how conscious they are of other Indiana writers who were once famous in the late 19th century, uh, people like Lou Wallace, for example. Yeah, well, there's going to be a new adaptation of Ben-Hur coming out, which is Lou Wallace's um, you know, most successful novel, one of the most successful novels of the 19th century. Uh, and then in the multiple adaptations in the 20th century, Again, very successful. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, Riley's poetry is um, is so inaccessible today because it is written in this dialect, um, this old Hoosier dialect um, that uh, is not something that we're accustomed to. Um, and I, I think that um, you know, perhaps if, if there was a, a, a trained um, poet or, you know, someone, who, a performer who could do it and, and really do it well, just as, you know, I mean, my wife is a, a medievalist and, you know, at some of her conferences, people will speak uh, Chaucer's poetry in, in, in Middle English and, and, you know, they have the pronunciation down and, and that kind of stuff. I think that the dialect um, that Riley wrote in um, is very difficult for us just to look at on the page um, or to, to read without much practice. 
Um, and so I, I think that it's it's difficult to to resurrect Riley today. Of course, Riley's name lives on perhaps most prominently, uh, at least in Indiana, in Riley Children's Hospital, um, which Peyton Manning gave a bunch of money to and has, has is really one of the best children's hospitals in the country. And um, you know, it, it was named for Riley because of how, of how beloved he was by the nation's children. You mentioned you're from Richmond, Indiana. Some people divide Indiana into a southern section, which is linked to the south and the Ohio River borderlands, versus northern Indiana, which is more typically Midwestern and Rust Beltish. Then there are urban centers such as Indianapolis and Gary, and Gary is in many ways a part of Chicago. I'm just wondering where would you situate Richmond in the overall landscape of Indiana? So Richmond does have a really interesting industrial history, for one thing. Um, a lot of its industry left, um, and uh, it's really been struggling to get back on its feet. Um, but one of its proudest industries, and, and what has been a, a deep source of local pride, uh, was the Jeanette Records factory. Um, the Jeanette Records factory was one of the real pioneers, sort of accidentally, but one of the real pioneers of jazz recording in America. Um, and uh, a whole host of, of very famous um, jazz musicians uh, recorded sets there, some of their early sets. Um, and I think that it was, it was the, the location of the first racially integrated um, recording, uh, which is something to be very proud of. Um, but also Hoagie Carmichael recorded Stardust there um, many years after the fact. Uh, but uh, William James Bryan recorded um, his Cross of Gold speech there uh, before he died. Um, it drew some you know, pretty uh, famous and, and successful people. Um, so it has uh, received a, a great deal of, of um, renovation recently. And, and uh, there are some jazz fans who come through and, and sort of pay homage to the, uh, to the, the old shrine. Um, but it, it was part of a, an industrial boom in, um, in Richmond that drew a lot of money and culture. Uh, and some of that uh, sort of capital investment has persisted even still. Um, I grew up you know, being able to go to um, a symphony orchestra that was uh, really one of the few symphony orchestras for a town of that size in the country. Um, the high school, which is a beautiful building, um, has uh, an art museum attached, a very small art museum, but with some really nice art. Um, and so it's a, a really remarkable place for that. Um, and, uh, but in terms of, of the larger Indiana geography, I think that, um, you know, the, the, my dad is from, um, from Southern Indiana, from Davies County, um, very rural, uh, county. And, and my mom grew up in Northern Indiana. So they kind of met in the middle, Richmond's on I-70. Uh, on the, the eastern border of, of Indiana with Ohio. But um, they kind of met in the middle. And, and um, so I, I, I have a lot of experience with, with both sides of Indiana. Um, and with, uh, I mean, Richmond's not a megalopolis or anything like that. But I do think that because of its industrial history, um, it has more of, of a, a feel of, of some of the, the old industrial heartland uh, aspects of Indiana as well. Andrew, you recently gave the opening keynote address at the Midwestern History Conference in Michigan, uh, which is co-sponsored by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State. 
and the Midwestern History Association. And that address is now on YouTube for those of you who would like to uh, hear all of Andrew's remarks. Uh, but could you tell us what your message was uh, in your keynote address to the Midwestern History Association's uh, recent conference? What did you talk to them about, Andrew? Yeah, well, essentially it was about why, uh, why Midwestern history is receiving uh, a new hearing, I guess, uh, why it excites people in a way, and, and uh, why intellectual history is also seeing a sort of revival right now. And I think that it's a, a similar reason for both, which is that both really look for common ground. Um, and it's funny to say that, I guess, in a country that seems so incredibly polarized, um, politically, socially, um, you know, the state of the nation is, is, uh, is grim in many respects. But I think that that also has led to a deep desire to really return to some basics um, and to, to return to not the lowest common denominator, but a common denominator um, across U.S. history um, without erasing um, you know, some of the exceptions, some of the, the episodes and, and events that you know, we can't reduce to what has been common uh, across U.S. history and, and across social groups. Um, you know, the particular experiences of racial minorities, of gender minorities, of sexual minorities, without erasing those histories, can we still find some sort of common ground um, within the history of the United States uh, to, to really find you know, a path forward uh, as, as a nation um, and as a people, I think. One of the points you made in your speech uh, in Michigan is that the Midwest, in an odd way, can be considered the most postmodern region. What did you mean by that? Yeah, no, I, I think that we, we tend to associate the Midwest as the, the most traditional region in, in some ways. But I think that it's um, postmodern in part because it seems to have this complex relationship to its own identity. You know, people can feel very passionate about being Midwesterners, but even as they say that, you know, they can't point to some particular center um, or core uh, that they feel like really is the indisputable core of Midwestern identity. And in that sense, I think that it's, it's postmodern. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, Midwesterners you know, have very deep attachments to their region. Many do. Um, but it's not just a matter of everybody has a different sort of a, a, a version of the Midwestern identity. But I think that um, it's also that we're, we're not sure that we mean the same thing um, because there's not uh, a single thing to, to mean. Um, and I think that that is, is uh, what I was trying to get at when I said that it was, it was a postmodern region. You mentioned attachment to region, and you recently published an essay in the new journal Middle West Review about Saul Bellow, who was very much connected with region and Chicago and the larger Midwest and Minneapolis, too. Can you tell us a bit about Saul Bellow and his connections to the region and your new essay? 
Yeah. Uh, so the the essay looked at um, uh, and the first volume of a two volume biography. The second volume hasn't come out yet, but um, the first volume was really about his uh, his youth up through um, when he published uh, his his great novel Herzog in 1964. And um, that was pretty much the, the pinnacle of his his uh, artistic career. He would later receive the Nobel Prize, but most people regard uh, Herzog as uh, his greatest achievement. Um, and uh, it was a Book of the Month club selection, a surprise, because it's a very philosophical novel. Um, and so, um, but it was, it was tremendously popular, sold millions of copies, um, huge success. Um, and so I was looking at this this biography, and I was looking at uh, some of his uh, recent volume of his collected essays. It's nonfiction, um, and I had written uh, my undergraduate uh, thesis on Saul Bellow, and so I hadn't really looked at him much uh, since then. And you know, his his writing is is magical. Um, he's one of the great stylists of the 20th century in any language, I think. Um, and um, He's also a very difficult uh, writer to read, not only because he is very philosophical and deals with a lot of high-level concepts, but also because he has such um, forthright views on on very controversial topics, um, most notably on on the relations between men and women. Um, And so it's a challenge to to read him and not to get angry, um, which uh, is something that can be a rewarding experience um, still. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that um, reading about some of the, the biographical background um, both uh, intensified that, um, that when, when you read about some of his relations with his wives, uh, with women that he had affairs with, um, it is very difficult not to to feel <laughs> somewhat angry about. Uh, maybe I'm a bit prudish, but um, the, but on the other hand, the biography is not excessively gossipy. Um, it's is a very um, substantial contribution to scholarship on Saul Bellow. It really makes the case for um, his importance as an intellectual um, and as a novelist. Um, and, and how well connected he was to the, the really important artistic and intellectual movements of his day. Speaking of some of your discomfort with uh, parts of Bellow, I recently watched the new HBO documentary about the New York Review of Books, and it included some rather jarring scenes of Norman Mailer making comments about women uh, that are certainly comparable to Bellow. Um, but But wasn't Bellow most famous or infamous or well-known for his comments about multiculturalism during the 1980s and the and the very public battles about multiculturalism yeah so he was he was asked about multiculturalism um and he very flippantly answered, you know, who is the Proust of the Papuans? Who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? If you tell me who it is, I'll read him. Um, and I don't think that the, the, the gendering of, of the pronoun there was accidental. Um, but what's really odd is that Bellow is one of the, the few major novelists of the 20th century with extensive graduate education. Uh, and it was in anthropology. Um, and he studied with 
some of, of the the great early um, theorists of um, of multi of what would I suppose later be multiculturalism of the value of all cultures uh, and the complexity of all cultures. Uh, Melville Herskovitz was one of his graduate instructors, um, and so to to see Bellow uh, being so flippant about uh, other cultures, it, it was was very strange um, in light of his intellectual biography. Um, and, uh, but he had um, a, a long history of very ill-considered comments and <laughs> some he committed uh, to print in his novels. Um, and so I, I think that he was, he was certainly a provocateur um, and uh, you know, much like Norman Mailer, as you say. And um, which doesn't mean that I, I don't think that he meant it, but I, I think that he was thinking more about um, the wittiness of, of the comment than really about its content um, when he made it. Um, but that's that's not to exonerate him by any means. Um, and I think that you know it, it was uh, an incredibly uh, stark um, betrayal of, of some of, of his his intellectual formation. Um, and in other works, I, I think that he shows a lot more consideration for the value of cultures other than his own. Uh, so, you know, it's difficult to, to really come to terms with his contradictions, I think. Given the tremendous stature of Bello in the world of letters and all of his prizes, um, do you think it's surprising at all that he was so open about his embrace of his Midwestern origins? No, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, he had uh, a deep desire, uh, which he shared with um, his good friend, Ralph Ellison, not to be defined or contained by any particular identity. So I don't think that he, he wanted to, I think it was easier for him to claim an identity as a Chicagoan. Um, it didn't really pin him down in, in the same way that uh, a regional identity would. I'm sure he looked at someone like Faulkner or Flannery O'Connor, you know, who had such a, or Eudora Welty, who had such a deep tie to uh, a particular regional identity. Um, and I don't think that he wanted to be read solely as a regionalist, just as he didn't want to be read solely as a Jew um, or as a Jewish American. Um, and so, like other Jewish American authors of that era, I, I think that he had a very um, ambivalent relationship to his, his religion and to his, his region. Um, you know, I, I think that um, Philip Roth has, has more recently um, identified with uh, not just Newark, but New Jersey in general. You know, American pastoral is as much about the, the state of New Jersey as, as it is about Newark. Um, and I think that, you know, perhaps Bello, if he had um, gone in that direction, would have written some really great uh, regionalist writing about the Midwest. But I think that you know, for, for him, Chicago is was all he really wanted um, in, in terms of its, its culture and its uh, milieu. Uh, so I guess that that was where he was going to stop. But that doesn't mean that he didn't. He, he lived for a time in Minneapolis. Um, and I think that he really enjoyed himself there, felt very Midwestern while he was living there. Um, 
or maybe he was living in St. Paul, but uh, he was living in the Twin Cities at any rate. And um, you know, so there, there, was, there were experiences like that, but I think that Chicago really summed up the Midwest for him. Our guest today has been Andrew Seal. Andrew is a native of Indiana and is now finishing his doctorate in American Studies at Yale University. We wish the best to Andrew. Thank you all for joining us today for another episode of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Locke. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.